0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Stephen Moe speaking. Today, we get to speak with Dr. John Vargo from Resilient Organizations. And we talked with him about that word resilience and what it means, particularly in the context of the Christchurch earthquakes, where the academic studies became reality, and he found himself in a living laboratory studying what resilience actually meant for organizations. As well as that, he started his career in Silicon Valley, so we learn a lot about what that was like back in the 1970s and Resilient Organizations is a social enterprise, so he also has some things to say about social enterprises. Here's an excerpt from that interview.
1: Well, I would certainly encourage anyone who's listening to this to uh, think from a social enterprise standpoint, to think about uh, your business, uh, if it's not a social enterprise, how you could bring on some of the characteristics of a social enterprise in terms of a business with a purpose how you work with your employees, how you share your profits, uh, those kinds of things which are important characteristics that will create this thriving future for our communities.
0: I know you're going to enjoy the interview. And in coming weeks, we're going to be speaking with Dr. James Austin from the Harvard Business School, with Bailey Perryman from Cultivate Christchurch, Ben Atkinson from Fill Their Lunchbox, and Kit Hinden from Ministry of Awesome. And that's just a few of the people who are coming up. If you want to make sure you don't miss upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. And I've said before, this is a word-of-mouth show, so if you find it helpful, please share it with a friend. Now let's jump into that interview with John Vargo. So I'm here with Dr. John Vargo from Resilient Organizations. John, thanks for joining this podcast.
1: Good morning, Stephen. Thank you very much. Great to be with you.
0: I was reflecting as I was driving over, John, um, that we've known each other quite a long time, haven't we? Oh, it's been a few years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because I think it's, you know, it's one of those small world coincidences. But um, your wife, Sherry, was born in the same hospital as my father, Norman.
1: Mm, In San Francisco, St. Mary's Hospital. Yeah, Mm. yeah,
0: it's an amazing thing. And then when we first moved to New Zealand, uh, first moved to Christchurch in 1989, you were almost our neighbor.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think uh, Sherry heard this other American voice across the tennis court, and it was your dad.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think you must have been. I would have been twelve been, or something. Yeah, seven. probably
0: twelve. I think I just turned thirteen, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's great to be able to invite you to come on this. Um, what we do here is talk a lot about purpose mm. and what it is that motivates people. And I'm really particularly interested with you um, talking about that word resilience and particularly in the Christchurch context, and just what it what it means given the earthquake and what it is that you're involved in now. Sure. Um, but before we get into that, if we could dial back, go way back to the beginning, if you could give a little bit of history um, for your own story and, and where you've come from.
1: Sure, Stephen. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in uh, Detroit. Uh, uh, we were uh, a devout Catholic family, and I think that was certainly something that helped establish my sense of uh, social justice and purpose and, you know, wanting to do things the right way. As I I sometimes say, we were raised in the fear of the Lord and the fear of my mother's hairbrush. (laughs) So uh, I had a a great upbringing uh, in in Detroit. Uh, I moved to California in my early 20s. I trained as an accountant at the University of Michigan. So I was uh, what they call in the United States a CPA a chartered accountant, equivalent of a chartered accountant in public practice. Uh, went to work for a big electronics uh, firm, which got me in contact with the computing industry uh, fairly early in my career and early in, uh, in the industry in many ways, And back in the 1970s. Mm. Uh, and then met my darling, Sherry, uh, in California, in the Silicon Valley. Uh, and in the 1980s, we moved to New Zealand mm. to uh, start a family. Got two beautiful boys, uh, Jake and Jeremy, grown men now. Uh, we're proud of both of them. Yeah, so that that's kind of the beginnings of my background in terms of uh, how how I see the world. Uh, also, from a risk uh, risk and emergency and resilience standpoint, I guess my background originally as an auditor brought me into contact with uh, financial risk and concerns around that and. When I took up my role at the University of Canterbury, lecturing in accounting and information systems, uh, I became interested in more more and more interested in computing, and in particular in security issues around computing. So computer security, network security was a strong interest of mine through the late 80s and 19, uh, 1990s mm-hmm. in, into the early 2000s. Mm-hmm.
0: And just just to pause there for a second, just... I'm just curious, um, you mentioned Silicon Valley in California mm. back in the 1970s, so yeah. obviously it's world-setting, trend-setting place these days. I just wonder if you could um, describe what it was like back when you were living in that area.
1: Uh, was, uh, it was pretty amazing. I mean, the the companies who we look to today, like Intel and Hewlett-Packard and, and uh, uh, the likes of those companies, were just getting started. I, I was working for a company called Fairchild Semiconductor uh, in the in the Silicon Valley. They're often referred to as Mother Fairchild because they are the beginning of the electronics industry in Silicon Valley. A man named Shockley, who invented the transistor at Bell Labs, had moved to Stanford University uh, to continue his research, and he started a company called Shockley Labs. Uh, and uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, well Fairchild Cameron Instrument bought them in 1958, I think. Uh, and that was the very beginning of, uh, of Silicon Valley. So all of the other companies in uh, in the area uh, who were involved in producing semiconductors all came from Fairchild.
0: Mm. And when you were there, when when you would talk with people, was there a sense of that there was something different about this place? Oh,
1: absolutely! I remember sitting in uh, in our cafeteria on the third floor. I think it was Building Five on the Fairchild campus, and uh, uh, an announcement came over the PA that Intel had just announced the first microprocessor, the forty forty, uh, and people said, "Whoa, oh, wow! We we got to get." Got to get moving. We can't let them get ahead of us. Right. Uh, and the same thing with the first semiconductor memory, and so everything we see today in our handheld devices uh, started back then. Uh, and so there was a real sense of uh, we're 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 going to change the world mm. uh, within the industry at the time, and there was very uh, uh, it was very tumultuous in many ways because there was a lot of toing and froing, a lot huge amount of competition. Uh, Companies trying to get the best talent. Uh, And you had terrific other organizations who had been there previously, like Hewlett Packard, who had been in the valley uh, before the semiconductor industry started.
0: That's fascinating. And then, so you relocated from there to Christchurch, New Zealand. How did that come about?
1: Uh, Sherry and I were thinking about starting a family in Silicon Valley. I decided we didn't really want to do it in the rat race of Silicon Valley. Mm Uh, so we started looking further afield. In fact, we even bought some property in Oregon, which is north of California on the Pacific coast. Uh, but one in, in amongst the conversations over a period of months, uh, I asked Sherry the question, would you entertain someplace outside of the U.S.? And she said, oh, New Zealand's got possibilities.
0: And she had been here before, is that right?
1: She'd been here on holiday with some friends of hers. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, she and I came down on a holiday ourselves. I set up interviews with four of the universities, and they were all looking for someone with uh, accounting and computing skills. It was unusual at the time. Uh, I got an offer from the University of Canterbury, fell in love with Christchurch, mm. uh, and a year later we were living here.
0: Wow. So what year was, was that? Was that nineteen early 1980s? Early
1: 1980s. Mm. Yeah, 1981.
0: 1981. And so then um, just describe a little bit about your career at the University of Canterbury what you were involved in.
1: I, I was involved in teaching and research. that's the job of an academic, some administration. Uh, and in those during the 1980s in particular I taught virtually every accounting course uh, just about that the uh, university had to offer as well as most of our information systems courses. And then over a period of time I phased phased out of teaching accounting. And moved exclusively into teaching information systems. Uh, my research moved into uh, the computer security and uh, uh, area, uh, network security, working with a wonderful colleague of mine named Ray Hunt. Uh, so, through the 80s and 90s, that was really my focus. Became involved in uh, university administration in the uh, probably mid 90s, 96, 97. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Became the uh, head of department of our department. Then I became the dean of the business school. I mm-hmm. uh, I was then invited to take on a, an unenviable role, really, which was to restructure the university. Uh, so I was director of the university's restructuring project that took it from, I think it was 38 independent departments to four or five, I guess, colleges in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then had a range of other senior roles in uh, the administration at the university, uh, including chief operating officer, uh, uh, a range of other chief financial officer, Mm -hmm. chief information officer, mostly in change roles. You know, there was change going on. Uh, Some people thought I did a particularly good job of uh, carrying out the restructure My colleagues in academia, I think, did not. I I had met met some people who were upset with the restructure, unsurprisingly. Uh, The reason I took on what I knew was going to be a difficult job is because I thought maybe I could do it in a more compassionate way than would otherwise perhaps be the case. How successful I was, I'd have to rely on my colleagues to say. Uh, But it was an interesting and uh, stressful time for me. It was around that time, though, that I received a phone call out of the blue from a, a young woman who had just returned from the UK. Her name's Erica Seville. She, she had uh, come back to take a, a, a junior academic position in the, uh, in the engineering school in civil and natural resources engineering, and she was a rising star for them. She'd received funding from our central government to start a research program called Resilient Organizations. And I uh, was her first recruit at Canterbury. She was looking for someone to co-supervise her first PhD student. Mm. And she was looking for somebody who had an interest in risk. But from a uh, a more social science perspective, uh, she was already representing the engineering and hard science side, I guess you might say. So, so, this,
0: so this was a something that potentially could use all the skills from your past? Yeah. You know, and, you know. and then... You know, relate them to something new.
1: That's exactly right. So, and
0: and what year was that? Was that pre pre earthquake then? That was
1: pre oh yeah, well pre earthquake. That was in two thousand three. Okay. Late late two thousand three. So we agreed to meet for lunch, and uh, she shared her vision Mm -hmm. for this research program with me. I could see the connections to uh, to my past work, uh, both in auditing and in computer and network security. But the vision she was painting wasn't about those technical things, although there are technical aspects to organizational resilience. But it was really around the turbulent world that we're moving into, have been moving into, and seems to be accelerating, Mm -hmm. uh, and what we could do to help organizations weather it, uh, New Zealand companies to uh, be better prepared. Uh, to be adaptable, not not just be able to survive an uncertain and unpleasant future, but rather thrive in a future that was full of opportunity. Uh, and uh, I just jumped on board. I just loved the idea. And
0: wow. So she articulated that vision very clearly for you right did. from the beginning.
1: Yes. It yeah. just fired up in my mind. Uh, she had been in London when 9-11 happened in the United States, and she was amazed, Uh, Flabbergasted, I guess you might say, uh, at the negative reaction and unprepared state of many UK businesses to that event. And she thought, there's something going on here. And so she looked, did a bit of research, uh, literature review to see what was happening in that space and found a lot of material around a personal resilience, stress management, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and community resilience, uh, quite a long history of research going on in that area, mm-hmm. and, and a virtual wasteland uh, when it came to organizational resilience just wasn't anything uh, in the literature, and she thought this is this is my sweet spot
0: this is the this is the thing that I want to this is the thing to, to devote my time to <laughs> That's right
1: so we've been at this uh, almost 14 years Wow yeah
0: mm, yeah so just thinking about that term resilience um, how would you describe it or what is it that because that's the core of what you're doing
1: It is yeah um, that's right Steve
0: Yeah I mean it, from someone who hasn't studied resilience, what is it that you would say to them or uh, to describe? what it actually means.
1: Well, I guess I'd probably start with our definition, and there are more than a 100 definitions, uh, all of them similar in some ways, but also quite different because of the different disciplines they come from, maybe the different scale that they're looking at. But our definition for organizational resilience is the ability to survive a crisis and to thrive in an uncertain world. And so it has two aspects. One, if there's a disaster like an earthquake or or a failure in your supply chain or uh, a war, uh, uh, anything like that, that would be a large uh, disturbance, uh, but also smaller things uh, that happen in the day-to-day. Uh, and really, that is probably the heart of what we're looking at, mm-hmm. as Erica described it to me, which is, uh, we live in a turbulent world. It looks like it's becoming more uncertain, more turbulent. And I uh, none of us want to leave to our children and our grandchildren a world where we're just barely hanging in there. Mm. And so becoming resilient, both surviving difficult times when they come, but also discovering fresh ways of thriving, uh, really having a ball uh, in spite of that turbulence. Mm. I guess the a metaphor that I carry around in my head is uh, a very, a very New Zealand sort of metaphor. It's a surfing metaphor, uh, and uh, you're at this surfing beach and these huge waves pounding the beach. And in the foreground, you've got somebody who's just barely getting on. Uh, they don't swim very well. They're being pounded by the waves. Uh, they're they're not they're not doing it all well. In the background, there's a surfer really waiting for the next wave. they got this huge smile on their face and they just can't wait for the next big wave and they catch it. And all of that unbridled power, they're able somehow to channel it uh, and be having a great time in the process. And it's and, and we, we want to stimulate organizations and businesses and NGOs, uh, government departments, uh, rugby clubs. It doesn't matter what kind or size of organization that'll become those surfers in turbulent times. Mm, you know? I see. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating because it, it, it's such a broad vision. I mean, it's a potentially big vision, isn't it? It's, Any type of organization from a sports club to a community group, you know, it could be anything, couldn't sure. it? Yeah. And and what I'm getting a sense from you is that this is, this is more like a call rather than a job, you know, like that this is something that you feel passionate about not just for yourself, but for the generations that are coming. Is is that right?
1: That's right. Uh, We see ourselves as a social enterprise. We're a small research and consulting group. Mm -hmm. I grew out of the University of Canterbury, but now an independent limited company. In New Zealand, there isn't a legal form for a social enterprise, so you really have to choose whether you're going to go with a uh, Mm not-for-profit type of arrangement or company. So we decided to go with a company structure, but we're... Uh, a social enterprise mm. uh, we want to make a profit but we want to make a difference uh, we want to m- make sure that we're having an impact on our community and we do that in various ways but really our vision is our overriding purpose and uh, we hope every day informs the way we work with organizations and, and work with one another in our small team we've got a team of eight
0: and are they all based here in christchurch or are they spread? All,
1: all based here in christchurch mm-hmm. and uh, I I have to acknowledge the kindness of the University of Canterbury for the space that we have and uh, the wonderful colleagues that we have at the University of Canterbury.
0: Mm. And so you, you were involved in this from 2003, and then, of course, earthquakes happened in Christchurch. Oh, yeah. So I imagine that all of a sudden, all the theories that you've been talking about, there's a real practical event which has happened um, can you just describe some of that, maybe describe your own experience of the earthquakes, but then sort of post that time, mm. what it's meant for your research? And, and.
1: Sure. Yeah, when the earthquake struck, the February earthquake, uh, I was on the top floor of uh, the Commerce Building, as it was called then, on the University of Canterbury campus. And, you know, for the, in the first few seconds, I thought, oh, it's just an aftershock mm. from the September earthquake. Uh, But after about two seconds, you know that that's not the case when it just doesn't rumble past and stop. Uh, And things just continue to build. The books on my bookshelves, and typical academic, I had hundreds of books on bookshelves everywhere, and they were like they were being shot out of guns at me. So I quickly got on the floor and climbed underneath the round table that was next to my desk and hung onto the pedestal. And, yeah, it was wild for... I don't know exactly how long, 15, 20, 30 seconds. Felt like minutes. Uh, then things settled back down, and I sort of pushed all the books off and pushed the the four-drawer file drawers that had all come uh, hanging out, uh, trying to drop on me, pushed them back into place so I could get, out, get up, grab my computer, and exited the building, along with everyone else. You know, everyone was uh, evacuating the building. So I got outside, uh, along with everyone else, and... Naturally, everyone was chatting with one another. But I thought in about five minutes, everyone's going to recognize we're going to have to leave campus. And this, uh, the parking lot's going to be almost impossible to get out of. So mm. I decided I'd get home as quickly as I could and see what the, how the rest of the family was. Uh, and I did. Uh, and as I was driving, driving out, uh, I could see a big aftershock come through. There was a woman walking down the footpath on uh, Clyde Road. And uh, she stumbled and grabbed hold of the uh, a light post that was right next to her, and it was whipping back and forth. And I thought that must have been a big aftershock. Yeah. Couldn't really feel it in the car. Uh, so, yeah, it was a, a day of fear and trepidation and excitement and... All of these things rolled into one.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was quite quite an experience for you, I imagine. Yeah, sure and, it was. And so just put it, I guess you would have immediately put on your resilience hat because that's what you'd been involved in, in and yeah. studying. What were some of the immediate things that happened and, and then how has it sort of shaped, you know, thinking it's now been six years, how has it sort of shaped what you've gotten involved in or given you a, a platform to speak to others?
1: Well, the most immediate thing that both Erica and my co-leader and myself got involved with was the university and its response and recovery. Erica was on the uh, team that managed the response, so she was in there advising the senior management team at the university and helping them uh, work through how things should go. Uh, uh, And I was involved in the social response, so I was at the university's uh, primary building that was still open. UCI-3 uh, Uci, UCI 3 is, is what the building was called at the time uh, and dealing with student issues and staff coming in and just helping manage some of that along with dozens of other volunteers from the university doing what we could to uh, help uh, respond and get the university back up and running. So uh, in the first few weeks, that was really the focus. Uh, following that, of course, we started thinking, well, what about our research? Uh, I, We've gone from a lot of theory, some application to some of our theory, but all of a sudden we're finding ourselves in a living laboratory, uh, which I wouldn't swear on anyone, but when you're in the middle of it, it's an opportunity that you can't overlook. Mm -hmm. And really following that, uh, the interest and demand for our research just went through the roof because Christchurch was such a huge event on the international uh, on the inter- international uh, scene, uh, eclipsed a-, a month or so later, of course, with the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, mm-hmm. which, of course, you were there for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we began to do, uh, extend our research pretty quickly. We carried out a large survey of uh, Christchurch in Canterbury organizations, about 1,000 randomly sampled across, I think, seven different, different industries, uh, to see how their recovery was going, this was probably started six weeks after the earthquake. Uh, uh, how their how their recovery was going was their insurance working for them, their relationships with their insurers and their bankers with their employees. So it was quite a wide ranging survey, which also included uh, our we have a survey that we use for measuring organizational resilience. So we also used a cut down version that we call the thumbprint, which was just a short. A mini version of our normal survey mm. to find out how businesses were doing and what their expectations were of the future.
0: Mm. And, and what are some of the key learnings that have come out from that research and, and being in a living laboratory? Sure. What are some of the, maybe the top couple things that were um,
1: not known before? Well, I'm not sure they weren't known before. I, I've come to the conclusion, having lived a while, that uh, there's probably nothing new under the sun. Right. Uh, and often we're rediscovering things that, you know, People previously knew uh, or, or know, but we just haven't come across. One of the key things for us in, in the survey, the thing that stood out as the primary concern of employers, you might have thought it would be their cash flow or their relationship with their customers, but their number one concern from that first survey was uh, the state of their employees and their employee welfare. Uh, and uh, we were just uh, heartened and humbled by that to see that New Zealand owners, business owners and employers, would be so concerned about their employees. Uh, And I don't think that's necessarily unusual, but certainly isn't often what you expect based on what you hear from uh, the media and movies, where you expect bad behavior and people to look after themselves. And uh, what we found in Christchurch was largely the opposite. The people are, uh, they go out of their way to look after their neighbor. Uh, They'll put themselves out to help someone else. And we found that true with the employers over and over again.
0: Mm. And you had examples of things like the student volunteer army rising up and, you know, different creative responses, didn't you?
1: Absolutely. Mm. So I... uh, from our viewpoint, a critical factor for a community and a society in terms, and, and an organization in terms of their resilience, uh, we, we can look at it quite a few ways. But one way is to think well, as an individual or an organization or a community, we need to be self reliant. So we need to accept that we need to look after ourselves, but we also need to be interdependent. And you could see that so much with the Student Volunteer Army as an example. You had people in the broken parts of our city, especially in the eastern suburbs, uh, looking after one another and helping one another. And but they were, but they willingly accepted the assistance from the student volunteer army to help them dig themselves out of the liquefaction, uh, from the farmy army, who brought in their tractors and bulldozers to help uh, clear stuff away. Uh, and that willingness to accept help as well as offer help. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that important part of interdependence that demonstrates our need for one another as human beings.
0: And I know um, since then you, you go each year to different conferences around the world. Um, you were in the States recently speaking. And um, what do you find that are some of the, the common questions that you get or what are the messages that you're sharing with those sorts of audiences?
1: Well, people often ask, how is the recovery going in Christchurch? Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, it, it was a terrible event. Are you guys getting back on your feet? Uh, my answer is always yes. But I, what I usually say is this, that before the earthquakes, the city of Christchurch was provably one of the world's great small cities, it won lots of awards, international awards as being a great small city before the earthquakes. Of course, then we had the earthquakes come and the pictures are heartbreaking of, of the loss that we've experienced, both in terms of life, property, uh, culture. Uh, but if you look after the earthquakes and you look where we are now or where we'll be in, say, five years, I would say Christchurch will be at least twice as good as it ever was. And that says a huge amount given how fabulous Christchurch was before the earthquakes. Uh, so we see all kinds of positive things happening. Uh, our, our, from an infrastructure standpoint, our city is going to be one of the safest earthquake cities in the world. Uh, From a cultural standpoint, the engagement of our city with our local iwi, Naitahu, I think is uh, fabulous with lots of Maori art coming through in the rebuild of the city. Uh, The city itself is becoming, will be much more energy efficient, much more people and cycle friendly uh much more en- engaging city more people living in the city uh these are all fabulous things from uh, uh how how great the city of christchurch will be and already is becoming i mean it's really starting to get a buzz mm. in the city now here in uh 2017 mm.
0: yeah yeah there's a lot of um hope for the future i think and and just thinking about um we we talked about organizations and how the the work that you're doing has potential to affect from small community groups right up to large organizations. What would be some, if someone hadn't read the research about resilience, what would be some of the, the things that they should do to, to help their organization become more resilient?
1: Well, I guess one of the things I'd say as a precursor to that, Steve, is that uh, as a social enterprise, but we're also a business, we're a business with a purpose. Uh, we obviously have to earn income. Uh, and uh, we, we get that from two primary sources, from uh, central government funding and large research projects that we're involved in, like Quake Corps and the Resilience to Nature's Challenge, National Science Challenge, but also from individual organizations who, uh, who we do work for. Uh, but we recognize that uh, most small organizations, small businesses and NGOs, uh, they won't be able to afford our services for us to consult with them. Uh, They just haven't got the income stream to do that. And so we convert a lot of our material into material that anybody can access from our website. Mm -hmm. So we've got a series of booklets. Uh, The first one's called Shut Happens. Uh, We created that one in conjunction with the Ministry of Civil Defense and Emergency Management uh, back in 2012 for any organization, but aimed particularly at small and medium-sized uh, New Zealand businesses, and, and maybe NGOs as well, uh, for, to, for them to think, okay, how can I prepare myself so that I'm more resilient? Uh, since then, we've also created one targeted specifically at NGOs, uh, at employers, at uh, people to make sure that they get the most out of their insurance, uh, those sorts of things. And some of the advice that we offer are just do simple things. If you're not doing anything to build your resilience right now, Anything you do is going to improve it. Uh, And so simple things like have morning tea with your staff once a month with a particular purpose of thinking, what if when we came to work tomorrow, power was gone completely or our building was gone or our major supplier from the UK or the US or or China uh, had failed? What would we do? And sit down and talk to your people about what they think you should do. Uh, simple things like making sure you've got a contact list of all of your employees, of their uh, landlines, if you still have a landline, uh, each of their cell phone numbers, their physical addresses, uh, their, their who to reach if they're not home, uh, and then make sure that that list is in your phone's. in a a piece of paper that they keep at home as well as at the office. So if the technology is not working, you still have a way that you could get on your bike and ride it over to your employees and see how they're doing, you know, in a worst-case scenario. Uh, Doing simple things like that, making sure that you're backing up your your systems, your computer systems, and storing the backup off-site. Just take it home with you. Uh, We saw so many businesses in Christchurch that had backups, but they kept the backup in the server room. But when they couldn't get back into their building, it was very, very hard going for them. Uh, So simple things that can make a big difference. uh, If you've got the resources and time to do a full business continuity plan, great. But, you know, our experience is most smaller organizations uh, they're they're just concerned about meeting the payroll this week and mm. uh, making sure their customers are happy and uh, you know often don't have the time to put in to extensive planning. Mm. There's still things you can do.
0: Mm. So if people want to access those guides and find out more, um, that's all on your website. It's if, all on if, our website. So if they Google resilient organizations, it's going to come up.
1: It's going to come up, or they can yeah. go to www.resorgs.org.nz. Www.resorgs, org. Mm-hmm. nz. And it's all available from our website. It will be under the resources tab.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. And just thinking, uh, coming back to the title of this podcast, just thinking about purpose. um, How's that playing out for you? Is this work with resilience? Is that uh, that where you feel like you're able to make the most contribution right now? Or um, yeah, what shape does purpose take in your life?
1: Uh, purpose for us as a group with resilient organizations certainly is focused on helping organizations of every kind become more resilient. Uh, we often work with critical infrastructure organizations, and of course, they provide the, uh, the foundation for a civilized society. Having the power on, the roads working, the water uh, clean and drinkable uh, are all critically important things for society to get, to get back on its feet uh, after a major disaster of some sort. Uh, and so helping them uh, get back up and running more quickly or preventing them from uh, having a failure in the first place are all important things. So uh, we, th- we think making that difference at both ends of the scale, smaller organizations and larger ones, uh, right up to government. Uh, we think government can become more resilient through the practices uh, and principles that we uh, encourage, uh, in particular uh, principles like trust, Building trust within your organization, building trust with your customers in your supply chain or with your citizenry uh, is probably number one. Because if your people trust you, trust your organization, they're going to volunteer their good ideas. Uh, they're going to be there to help when trouble comes. Uh, they're going to be there to work together with others and collaborate uh, in order to come up with fresh ideas for creating a more uh, civil society, a more thriving society, regardless of what uh, life throws at us. Mm.
0: So that's the organization that you're involved in, and it's Drive for Purpose. And how about for you personally? What shape does it take for you?
1: For me personally, uh, amongst the important things are my family. Uh, so uh, helping helping uh, with my grandchildren. I've got a, a granddaughter who's three and a grandson who's six. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michaela and is a wonderful little girl. We babysat her uh, last night, and Seth, uh, I, I, and and our grandchildren, and our children, uh, Jake and his wife Kim, and Jeremy, uh, in Auckland, are an important part of our lives. And making sure that we reserve enough time mm. that we don't become so busy with other things that we don't have time for them is really important mm. to my wife Sherry and I. Uh, I. We also Sherry, in particular, runs a mentoring program at our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're both involved with mentoring uh, mostly young people, but not always, sometimes older people as well who just need somebody to talk to, mm-hmm. uh, somebody to think through issues in their lives, help become uh, better people, uh, become more Christlike. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, those things are important to us uh, in terms of maintaining our own resilience uh getting sufficient exercise and rest and, you know, the things that are good for us physically and mentally and spiritually mm. uh, are all, you know, part of the part of the package, I guess, mm. of uh, resilience from uh, from the smallest scale, the individual and the family up to a national scale.
0: Mm. And, it, it, you know, you're so involved in many different things. That's the sense that I get. Mm. And, and and yet you've been able to combine the work that you're doing with resilient organizations with with you know thinking of the future you know you talk about your grandchildren and your children and um, i think that's really great that you've been able to find a niche where it's not just about going nine to five there's actually a bigger purpose you know you describe it as a social enterprise yeah just picking up on the word mentorship you know that that the idea that we can build into other people coming up and i know for me when i was at university I used to come and chat with you, you know, in the late 1990s, <laughs> and and learned a lot from our discussions. So um, so did so did I. Yeah. So it just it, it can be two way, can't it? And it and it's really valuable.
1: Yeah, that's one of the wonderful uh, things about uh, connecting with people. Mm. Uh, you know that that whole idea of yeah, self reliant. You want to be able to look after yourself and have something you can give to others, mm. but also our need for other people, mm. uh, and that two-way street. Mm. So uh, when when Sherry and I mentor people and others within our mentoring team at church uh, get involved, they often come away uh, having learned a lot more than their mentor has, mm. than their, their mentoring partner has.
0: Yeah. So John, I'm just thinking about I guess the word would be failure but also just about time machines. <laughs> if you had the ability to go back in time and talk to yourself you you're you're just about to maybe move to California. What are some of the concepts or things that you you would tell your younger self? What is it that, you know, looking back on your life, what what would you wish that the young John knew that you know now?
1: Well, a, a couple of things. One is mistakes or wrong perspectives or attitudes. I guess uh, I I was a fairly prideful young man, you know, somebody who thought he knew everything. And uh, I, you know, intelligent, went to a really good university, had all these things that, you know, I thought it was pretty wonderful. Uh, and partly as a consequence of that, I think I didn't trust people as much. I just On that equation of self-reliance and uh, interdependence, I was strong on the self-reliance side, (laughs) but very weak on the interdependent side and didn't tend to reach out and seek advice from others. And when it was offered to me, you know, it it wasn't that I was a horrible person. If you met me, you probably thought, oh, he's he's a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, maybe a good a good face, but I probably didn't listen that closely. I wasn't a good listener. And, uh, you know, hubris. That, that word, human human hubris, looking at ourselves and thinking more of ourselves than we really should. Yeah, I had a pretty good case of that. Mm. Uh, so I'd go back and tell my younger self, I uh, listen, you need to knock that thing on the head. Right. Uh, you're going to have a much more enjoyable life. You're going to learn more. Uh, you're going to have a better impact on other people's lives. You're going to avoid... Uh, a lot of the ups and downs that you will experience uh, if you reach out to other people and seek help, and seek advice.
0: Mm. So an emphasis on that interdependence that you can't just be the lone ship sailing off on your own.
1: Absolutely. That'd probably be my biggest lesson. Mm. If I look at my sort of multiple failings in various things through my life, okay. most of them have found their root uh, in uh In that, you know, there's a saying in Christian circles that uh, pride is the strength of sin. Mm. It's the thing that keeps you bound to what you do wrong because you haven't got the humility to recognize it and to uh, to change your mind.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, that's a great lesson I think for anybody listening to um, to remember. You know that no man's an island, are they? Mm. You need uh, you need support. You need community around you.
1: Absolutely. And that's my earlier comment. Mm. That's not a new idea. Mm. You Mm. know, it's an idea that's been around for thousands of years.
0: Oh, that's great. John, is there anything else that you'd like to share or say?
1: Well, I would certainly encourage anyone who's listening to this to uh, think from a social enterprise standpoint, to think about uh, your business. uh, If it's not a social enterprise, how you could bring on some of the Characteristics of a social enterprise in terms of a business with a purpose, how you work with your employees, how you share your profits. Uh, those kinds of things which are important characteristics that will create this thriving future for our communities. Uh, volunteering, start a volunteering program within your business and encourage your staff to take a day, a fortnight or something, to put their time into uh, community groups to help our community be more connected, uh, more, uh, m- more happy, more happy. Uh, more creative and, and innovative, all of those things which we have hiding inside of us just waiting to come out.
0: Mm, that's great. Well, thank you for joining me. If people want to connect with you, um, that website's the best place, is it? It is. Yep. So just remind us again what
1: it is. www.resorgs.org.nz or just Google resilient organizations and uh, you'll, you'll find us.
0: Great. Well, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much.
0: I hope you learned some things from that interview with John. I know I enjoyed chatting with him. And as I said at the beginning of the interview, I've known him since I was a kid. So it's really awesome to be able to interview him about his journey and what he's done in his life. In the next episode, we're going to be talking with Bailey Perryman, who's one of the co-founders of Cultivate Christchurch, which is an urban farm where young people can come and learn about purpose. So I have a great conversation with him about his journey and what led to forming Cultivate Christchurch. Here's an excerpt from that interview.
2: The first intern we had, I was showing her she didn't eat uh, a lot of real food. And I was showing her I was just kind of casually peeling back the core of a cost lettuce. It's kinda you might think it's just the stem of it, but there's Mm. a friend of mine had shown me that if you keep cutting it back you get to this really incredible, juicy, amazing core of this plant. You would just never expect to be there. And I told her it was a, a crystal, a cost crystal and I gave it to her to eat, and she was just hooked immediately and just, like, was massively <laughs> distracted, actually. It kind of became a miniature problem, but <laughs> it just wanted to peel back the core of every cost plant, but I've, I felt like it was really powerful because, in particular, her story and a lot of the young people who come to her site, and, and a lot of people in general, we have this really tough exterior and as you and and like a seed as well you know it has a a tough Mm. armor around for good reason yeah for good reason and and so too do we have tough armor around us you know we may have literally you know it's to protect ourselves but sometimes we forget how to peel that back and as you see young people start to so a lot of them come in wearing their hoods up and their head down, and as mm. you see literally their hoods come off and their heads start to come up and it's like again to use some of the words of one of our interns, it's like something blossoming, and it is coming to life, and so yeah the the analogy of the the cost lettuce and no matter no matter who or what. You you peel back those layers enough, and you will find something incredibly pure and, and literally crystalline, and, and and that's that's the essence. That's mm. who we are, mm. and uh, of course, Lettuce has just enabled us to give a very real form to that.
0: Bailey had a lot of insights to share, as you can tell from that excerpt, and I hope you can join me on the next episode. If you find the content of this show helpful, then consider sharing it with others, and also... There's now several episodes before this one, so have a look at those too. Until next time!